to Ghoulish Tendencies. I'm Gabby. And I'm Kim. And we are two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not-so-famous cases of Moida ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. 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 It wouldn't be truly a ghoulish moment if we didn't at least have to talk about debunking at one point in time. That's true. We usually do at least once an episode. Well, today (laughs) we have a fun topic that actually it's it's almost like a, a combination of my favorite types of topics. I know I've talked about this before. It's not vampires this time. Fun fact. Uh, we did that already. But this one's more so. I always get really uh, excited about spiritualism and talks of seances and how people were super obsessed with it back in the day. And when I heard about someone dealing with aliens, I was like, wait, what? I was like <laughs> paging Gabby because you love aliens. Paging Mulder, Fox Mulder. Yeah, Mulder uh, to the building. Dana Scully is not far away either. So that's good. uh, This is going to be almost like X-Files had a baby with spiritualism. That's terrifying. (laughs) So I hope, hold on to your butts. It's going to be a good time. Um, Now, what's wild about this, and and we're going to be talking a bit about historical references. And as you know, disclaimer... Not everything is accurate out there. Uh, One of the things, (laughs) right? Um, There's a lot of like overlap in some information. Some of it seems like, like this person could have been 10, 15, 20 years old. We're not sure how old they were, but this maybe happened. Uh, Lots of stuff like that. Um, And also a a lot of uh, word of mouth. So what's really cool about this topic is that uh, it takes place in the late 19th century. And um, there was a lot of interest, actually. I didn't realize this until I researched it, which I thought was pretty cool, that there started to be a lot of interest in Mars specifically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In um, the late 19th century, which was also alongside what was happening in the late 19th century, Kim. Spiritualism. Spiritualism. So, I mean, it doesn't totally surprise me that people were also talking about aliens because, you know, we exist as people that like spooky things like ghosts and seances and aliens also. So like somebody had to start that trend. Right. So um, what's interesting though, is when it got a bit scientific, right? So astronomers actually argued amongst themselves for a while, whether or not Martian civilizations actually existed. And I know that's still to this day, a topic that we talk about and have been trying to prove and also kind of proving truly, um, uh, throughout time, but people were also very religious back in the day. Some people now too. Uh, <laughs> just back in the day, just all the time, depending on where you go, when you're there, who you see. Uh, but there were some religious arguments that actually squashed the idea of alien life before the late 19th century. But because everybody was really into this woo-woo stuff, minds were a little bit more malleable in the late mm. 1800s. William Herschel actually studied Mars enough to suggest it had a dense atmosphere that was similar to Earth. So Hmm. people start, you know, we all start turning. Well, if it's similar to Earth, there's living things on Earth, maybe there could be living things on Mars. Sure. And in 1879, the first photos of Mars were taken by Benjamin Gould. He was uh, an American astronomer. 
I had no idea that there were pictures of Mars taken that long ago. Oh, <laughs> this yeah. This is like a yeah. fun fact for me to find out. Um, and then, you know, we get Darwinism, mm-hmm. which likes to, like, blow the steam out of extraterrestrialism for a period of time. And it still picks up again. So then there's Italian astronomer Giovanni Scaparetti. I'm probably going to, like, mispronounce a lot of names in this, but I can do the Italian ones. Uh, cool. Scaparetti. What a great name. Uh, He dubbed channels on Mars as scars on the surface, which suggested that there was life, but not only life, like an actual complex system of intelligent design to create these scars on the surface of Mars. Sure. Yeah. In 1880, Percy Gray published Across the Zodiac. This was basically a prototype of found footage, which you would probably really appreciate because I know how much you love a found footage moment, Kim. I do love a found footage moment. It was a sci-fi story uh, landing a spaceship on Mars, describing it as similar to Earth, where the visitors meet a Martian. Ooh. Right? This sounds like a fun time. It was actually the first science fiction novel to document any Martian language. Oh. And it actually coined the term astronaut in this book. So that's, oh, that's where cool. that word came from. That's really cool. Love the fun facts today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also depicted Martians as being human-like and living in a utopian-type realm, which that's been kind of the theme for a lot of like Martian depictions Oh, for, for a while. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was uh, Percival Lowell. He was an American astronomer, and he published uh, some pretty controversial research on Mars. He actually mapped hundreds of lines on the surface of Mars, saying that they were intelligently created canals used to transport water for the Mars extraterrestrials. So now the water is a thing here. Um. But, you know, if that was kind of wild, then wait till you meet Camille Flammarion. I'm <laughs> ruining name. his last name. Great name. Uh, this, is a very, uh, this is a French name. So I, I believe I'm, I could be saying it in a French way, but I'm saying it in the very not French way. Um, but he was a French astronomer. And actually, this is where the crossover begins. He was an astronomer and a spiritualist. And it's wild because when you think of like science and astronomy, you don't always think of people being like super into ghosts or spiritualism. You think of those, I mean, I I at least think of those as like two totally separate types of thought. But back in the day, this was kind of an overlap. So anywho, uh, our friend Camille Flammarion, (laughs) ruining his name, uh, his theories basically blew Lowell's out of the water. He wrote to an audience that actually was not scientific at all and encouraged people to use their imaginations and their minds. Mm. Reach deep into your mind and imagine all the people what it could be. All the people or aliens or right? aliens on, on Mars. It's easy if you try. <laughs> it really is, truly. Um, he wrote to an audience that, again, was more spiritualistic than scientific. And that's where the crossover really began. So Flammarion believed that spiritualist mediums were actually able to astral project themselves to Mars. Mm-hmm. And they were greeted by well-groomed, well-mannered, fancy aliens in a utopian society. Fancy aliens. Fancy aliens. Not just like, your run-of-the-mill, like, plebeian aliens, but fancy. Also, 
I wonder, like, what manners? How does that translate interstellar-wise? Like, what are manners even? But that's a, I, that's a whole other story for another time. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he was so confident in these beliefs that in actually in 1891, he offered 100,000 francs to anyone who could communicate with alien life on other planets. Damn. That is dedication. That's some. Uh, that's wealth well, as well. That's a lot of wealth. Yeah, that, that's privilege. Um, and it was the perfect time to really draw attention to weird shit, essentially, right? Weird, odd, unnatural. Spiritualism is fully encompassing of all these things. So if you're going to talk about paying 100,000 francs to someone who can speak alien, this is the time to do it. Now, there's one particular person who we will be talking about today. Uh, who was part of that overlap of spiritualists and alien moments. And this would be Catherine Elise Mueller or Muller. I think it's Muller, Catherine Elise Muller, who she actually later would go by Helen Smith. And she was a Swiss spiritualist who became the, if you will, original Mulder. Mm. Now, she popularized the concept of automatic writing, uh-huh. fun facts. It actually earned her admiration from the latter-day surrealists. But yeah. more interestingly, she visited remote times and places, Ooh. particularly 15th century India, mm. where she was a princess that was pretty doomed. Sure. An 18th century France situation involving mm. her being Marie Antoinette. I was like, guillotines? There was guillotines, right? That was also involved. Uh. Yes, 100%. And she even claimed to communicate with Martians from Mars. Mm. Not Martians from, like, Jupiter, because that'd be weird. No, more specific to that really popular planet that's kind of like Earth, but not Mars. A little hotter. Just, just a smidge. Or colder. We're just different. different, not Earth, <laughs> not Earth, like <laughs> not Earth. Um, she, in particular, would be hotter. That's that's true. That's true. But if she know, uh, as you'll find out later on, she didn't limit herself to Mars. We'll get to that later. I mean, why limit yourself to just Mars? There's you a bunch the of planets. Universe. Exactly. So many, many universes, if you will. So many. Uh, she actually caught the attention while talking about all this stuff of several linguists. Mm. And psychologists that found her abilities pretty fascinating. And, I mean, not only were they fascinating, but they were pretty scientific. So what is their favorite thing to do, Kim? What is your favorite thing to do? Is it debunking? It's a debunking. Uh, And we have one particular debunker who really did a deep dive of his own on her named Theodore Florinoy. I am going to mispronounce his name many times today. <laughs> it's half the fun. Right? Lots of French in this one. Oui, oui. He was a French, uh, or not French, he was a Swiss psychologist, and we'll get into him in a bit. Okay. So today, we will be talking about Catherine Muller, a.k.a. Helene Smith. And for the sake of not confusing any listeners... Just FYI, I'm going to be referring to her as Helene or Smith. So just FYI, that's that's what we're dealing with today. So let's talk about her life. Let's rewind a little bit. 
Born on December 9th, 1861 in Norton Switzerland, Helene Smith, Helene Smith, was born into a Protestant family. Fun fact, she was actually baptized into a Catholic church. Mm-hmm. And uh, her family, her mom in particularly, remained a devout practicing Christian. Uh, and her dad was a Hungarian merchant. Mm. And he actually possessed a remarkable facility for languages. Mm. He spoke fluent Hungarian, mm-hmm. German, French, mm. Italian, and Spanish. And he even understood English pretty well. And, uh, you know, why not throw in a little bit of Latin, a little bit of Greek? Sure. Worldly man. Worldly. You would think that Helene would have inherited his love for language with how she turned out, which we'll get to in a bit. But she actually always detested the study of languages. And she rebelled super hard against learning German, even (laughs) though she took lessons in it for three years. She just (laughs) couldn't get it. And so she just hated it. Her father never showed any hints of mediumship, but her Genovese mother, as well as her grandmother, had experienced several religious visions for many years. And one of Helene's brothers could easily have become a good medium, allegedly. 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 And the hereditary tendency of mediumistic faculties were very clearly in her blood. Sure. She had a younger sister named Marie, mm-hmm. who sadly died at age three when Helene was seven. Mm. Um, she also had two brothers that were older. Her mom noticed, uh, actually, right before uh, her daughter died, the, the three-year-old, she noticed an angel hovering over her daughter's bed just before her death. Mm. And that was one of the visions that she had. But... Speaking of Helene as a kid, she was a serious, intelligent, pretty introverted, and solitary young girl. She was quiet. She was afraid of the dark. She had a pretty, you know, unremarkable upbringing and would rather stay at home with her mom than make friends. Sure. And go out. I get it. Um, But she also felt isolated simultaneously from her family, which Mm -hmm. seems kind of odd if she like didn't want to go out, didn't want to make friends, but she still felt isolated from her family. She even asked her family one time if she was adopted because she felt so out of place Mm -hmm. and constantly felt homesick, but Hmm. she never knew why Hmm. she struggled in school. No Mm -hmm. surprise there with the three years of German that she didn't want to do. Sure. Um, and had a really hard time picking up new languages yeah, German. that's fair. I mean, same. Not yeah, not everybody has an ear for language, too. No. But her dad did. Yeah. Even though her dad encouraged her to learn more languages, she just really wasn't into it. She was actually more prone to daydreams and reveries. She also reported visions, mainly mm. consisting of colorful, hypnotic landscapes that she later attributed to Martian visitation. Uh, of course. <laughs> Told you it's going to be a good time. Now, as she hit her teenage years, her visions began to be more frequent, and they kept getting weirder and weirder. When she was about 14, she remembered seeing a bright light projected against the wall of her room at night. And then within that bright light, a bunch of weird little beings were just, like, standing in it. 
She had the impression of being fully awake when this happened, but told herself, no, that that must have been a dream. There's no way that that could have happened in real life. Mm -hmm. And that's when she realized, oh, my gosh, I think I just had a vision. Mm. I don't know. Maybe was that baby's first alien visitation? (gasps) Oh, baby's first alien visit. How do you you put that? Like what kind of scrapbook do you make for baby's first alien visit? Does that go in the baby book? I hope so. I hope that there's, like, a cute little, like, UFO with, like, a little cow hanging out underneath it and just, like, a cute little alien that says hi. That would be adorable. So cute. Sounds like a scene, honestly, like, straight out of the X-Files. Like, Mulder's sister's abduction. Um, it's true. Actually, the, yeah, Mulder's <laughs> sister abduction. That, that, is, that is accurate, yes. Even though she wasn't abducted, she just had a vision. She just had a vision. Well, but I don't know. Could she? Maybe she was. Hey. So she also experienced hallucinations while fully conscious. So one time when she was playing outside with a friend, she saw a man in a brown cloak following her like a friar looking dude. And when she told her friend, like, hey, do you see that guy? Her friend was like, no, man, I don't see anybody. And after following her around a tree for a moment, she noticed that the man disappeared and she couldn't find him again. Spooky friar. Sure. Yeah, that's that's very spooky. I mean, also just like creepy man following. No, see, I'd be more creeped out that some like weird friar dude is, is following me than to go to like this is supernatural or this is an alien or this, uh, I'd just be like, mm, that's, 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 uh, gives off some Chester the Molester vibes. <laughs> I just pictured like cartoon style chasing and hiding behind a tree, like ding, 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 and hiding, ding, 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 and hiding. Um, I don't think it was as funny as that, but that's Probably what not. I like to visualize. Well, and to be in the moment, terrifying, but like, oh, yeah. sure. Yeah. I love where my brain goes versus where your brain goes. It's so fun <laughs> to evaluate. <laughs> so anywho, she later realized that she actually has seen this man before. Mm. And there was an instance when she was 10 where she was attacked by a dog mm. and, uh, Someone came over and pulled the dog off of her and saved her and then disappeared. And they were also in a brown cloak. And um, apparently when this happened, he had showed up in her peripheral vision. uh, And she every time she'd go to look for him, he, he wasn't there. And this happened to her a bunch when she was a teenager. She'd see this dude in her peripheral. And when she'd go to look at him, he wasn't there. So this happened multiple times. Just kind of strange. There were some discrepancies in resources regarding the age that she started to work in a silk shop. This is one of those one thing said one thing, one thing said another course, situation. Right. Yeah. So some said she was 13, some said 15, some said, you know, when she hit her 20s, she started working at a silk shop. Either way, she worked at a silk shop. And she uh, lived a pretty quiet life until 1892 when a certain popular boom sucked her in. A la spirit. Is it spiritualism? It's spiritualism. (gasps) What? I didn't see that coming. That's what she said. Um, So while she's working at the silk shop, one of her coworkers uh, introduced her to the book Après l'Amour. I think I pronounced that correctly. Après l'Amour? 
Après le mot. I can't say <laughs> French words at all, so I'm just going to okay. butcher everything. This is, this is great that. for me because when I have to say anything in Spanish and I butcher it, this is this is fun for me because normally I'm the one butchering the words. You know, so. it's that's why we're here. We're here to have a good time. Exactly. So anyway, après le mot. <laughs> Close enough. Sure. Published in 1889 by Leon Denet, a French spiritualist philosopher. And this essentially was a spiritualist self-help book that became highly influential in the spiritual realm. So, of course, after reading this book, Helene was hooked. And shortly thereafter, she joined that same friend that showed her the book at a, quote, development circle. Mm. Do you know what a development circle is, Kim? Not, like, for people going through puberty? <laughs> no, she was already, I think, in her 20s at this point, unless she's a late bloomer. But it's spir- it's something of spiritualism. <laughs> it is. Yeah. You're right. It is absolutely <laughs> something about spiritualism. Basically, attendees would uh, join these groups to develop their psychic and spiritual powers through group tutoring, sure. activities, uh, basically like an intro to mediumship, if you will, type situation. Ooh. Table tipping was one of the most popular practices in these groups. And Helene was a huge, huge, huge success uh, and a large driving force of spiritualism. So Mm -hmm. once she was exposed to all this stuff, things were happening big time. So within one week of joining that group, she quickly began to show mediumistic uh, talents, specifically, quote, moral admonitions, Mm. treatment prescriptions for the consultants, Mm -hmm. messages from deceased relatives and friends, and revelations of past lives of the participants of the seance, Hmm. end quote. But her greatest skill was very clearly in automatic writing. Hmm. You know what automatic writing is, Kim, yes? Yes. Can you tell us what automatic writing is? Uh, Well... And not, uh, <laughs> that's not like AI bot writing. Correct. Not like when you're trying to text somebody and it just like predictive texts the wrong word, like oh, duck you. <laughs> it's um, amazing. Um, automatic <laughs> writing is, is basically, um, when someone is, is writing something that they don't, that they're not the ones that's actually writing it, that they're being driven by, uh, someone else, a spirit, a ghost, a presence that's dictating it. Um, it, re- it reminds me, it's not quite the same thing, but like with the Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. where you had the like, I was, there was these golden tablets and I had a thingy that I looked at to transcribe them. Not quite the same thing, but that's kind of what I always think about. Um, you, there's a, there's a, a, writing instrument like i mean like you can write with a pen or pencil but i think you can sure. also use like a ouija board to to do a form of it if i'm recalling correctly yeah i think the way that they were doing it was just literally like pen and paper okay yeah. um but there there's i mean a plethora of options of this but one of the main ways to communicate like actually communicate Uh, Like, yes and no was table tipping, right? But if you want to say more than yes and no, that automatic writing gets you a little bit more insight. Yeah. So, well done. Good job. By uh, March of 1892, this this girl is popular. She became a regular medium in the group. And by the end of that same month, she was actually chosen by the spirits (gasps) as the main 
medium. What? Kind of cool. And at that point, she was introduced to her spirit guide. So for those of you who don't know about spiritualism or this time, we've covered it a couple different times. We talked about the Fox sisters. We talked about uh, a few different Hodor, uh, a few different things we've covered about spiritualism. Um, Those might be fun to listen to prior to this if you want more insight on spiritualism itself. I'm not going to get into it now because we've already covered it. But... What is really interesting is that as you are a medium within a seance, you usually have a spirit guide with which you communicate and that communicates to others. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as her development as a medium progressed, she supposedly began communication with French novelist Victor Hugo. So Hmm. for those of you who don't know, he wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And and Les Les Miserables. Uh, as I butcher both of those two. Um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, you got pretty. <laughs> I can say Hunchback. It's yeah, great. It's good. That, that, one, that one's a pretty uh, straightforward. Let me pat myself <laughs> on my Hunchback. Um, so in August of 1892, though, a new spirit entered. And this one was named Leopold. Mm. Apparently, Leopold had been around Helene for a while and was likely the man in the brown cloak that she saw as a teen. Ah, But Leopold allegedly wanted control and Mm -hmm. often in seances was kind of an asshole. Okay. He would fully take control of Helene's body, forcing her into a trance-like sleep and interrupt whatever everyone was doing for attention until the rest of the group would just shut down the entire seance to shut him up and bring back Helene, (laughs) which I think is funny. Um, just a sassy, sassy spirit. Super sass. He also uh, spoke with an air of arrogance. Mm. Allegedly, he was jealous of Helene's relationship with Hugo, her original spirit uh, person. I guess. I don't know. How do you know these things? <laughs> he, he wrote it in his diary. Dear diary. He, he, yeah, he wrote it with Helene's handwriting. Absolutely. In her automatic writing. Automatic writing. Um, Dear diary. Dear diary. I'm jealous. I'm a jealous. I'm totes gel. I'm totes gel ghosty. I'm super jelly and um, I'm not okay Ectoplasmy. with that. Ectoplasmy. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. But he actually like harassed her, like legitimately harassed Helene. He actually pulled a chair out from under her when she was attempting to sit down one time. Dude, don't be a dick, man. He was such a dick. And he would always block communication from other spirits through her. So he just wanted all the attention. Just an attention whore of a ghost. necessary. Um, but oddly, he wasn't always a dick. He actually uh, spoke of himself as Helene's protector. Sure. And used that example of popping up in her life previously to warn her of danger. Danger, there was a Will moment Robinson. When danger. Danger, danger. He even claimed to only antagonize the seance group because they were a bad influence on her <sighs> and thought that she should seek another circle. Sure. So in June of 1893, the circle disbanded. So he got what he wanted. He got what he wanted. Are you happy now? You know, he was happy. Leopold was like, you know what? I love this new circle you're in. I'm here to stay. And then guess what he did? He peaced out. He evolved into another entity. Well, that's just rude. So during a private seance in a smaller group, smaller circle, one of the sitters introduced Helene to the name Count Alessandro Cagliostro. Mm-hmm. That's an a very Italian, dramatic name. 
It is count. You put count in front count. of anything, and it sounds more dramatic. One, uh, 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 So this guy was an Italian adventurer, an alchemist, mm. a psychic healer, and a mystic. Sure. Once linked to Marie Antoinette, mm. and suggested that Leopold was actually him. As Leopold confirmed that Helene once was actually the Marie Antoinette in her past life. What? The power of suggestion, friends. Yeah. Um, we're going to talk about suggestion in a bit, but like, this is like a he said, she said, but from like spirits from within. Um, his connection with the medium actually spanned more than a century because, uh. fun fact... This fancy Count Alessandro Cagliostro apparently was Marie Antoinette's lover. Ooh. Uh, and, you know, in a previous life when she herself had been an incarnate of Marie Antoinette means that the spirit was the lover of Helene. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, reunited. Wonderful. Reunited and it, and it feels so good. I guess so. Um, in addition, that didn't happen. I don't have notes on that at all. This is Aww. just an assumption. <laughs> Suggestion, if you will. Um, in addition to speaking in voices of uh, Marie Antoinette and her mm. lover, Smith uh, produced letters via automatic writing in distinctive handwriting attributed to each of them. So the handwriting style changed when she was one or the other. Um mm. And I mean, well, this is where my brain's like, can we compare it to their was, actual handwriting? Yeah. Do any of these still exist? Do we know any of these samples? So, fun fact. Fun I fact. have other samples to show you in just Ooh, a bit. So, okay. hold the phone. Okay. Helene's depictions of life at court were really detailed. Mm-hmm. Um, she was elaborate, and she actually mimicked Antoinette's refined behaviors with super high accuracy. Um. She upped her game, actually, after this uh, to offer archaic medical advice from the psychic healer Kelly Cagliostro, which I think is really funny that, like, not only are you going to be this, like, fancy Marie Antoinette, but you're also going to be like, hey, listen to me for your uh, medical advice um, because I'm a psychic healer that I'm not actually the psychic healer. Absolutely. So it didn't stop there. Smith soon revealed that hundreds of years prior to her incarnation as Marie Antoinette, she actually was the 15th century princess, I'm going to mispronounce these names, <laughs> Simondini, uh, the 11th wife of Prince Sivruka Nayaka of India. Mm. Now, while sometimes Leopold was able to describe what Smith was feeling when she was overtaken by the spirit of Simondini, mm-hmm. Simondini would actually announce herself directly and speak through Smith in a language that Leopold identified as, quote, ancient Hindu. This was considered Smith's first trance tongue, meaning it was not in the language that everyone around her could identify. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard to understand. And in a lot of her trance sessions, she channeled the princess or the princess's memories, including her horrific death. She was actually burned alive at her husband's funeral pyre. Oh, jeez. She committed the Sati Suti. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but it's committing suicide by jumping on someone's funeral pyre. Yeah, yeah. Um, So pretty terrible way to go. 
Um, she recounted landscapes, architecture, historical customs. She even sang exotic melodies and played with an imaginary monkey. Sure. Yeah. Who, who hasn't? Know. When the <laughs> opportunity arises, <laughs> play with an imaginary monkey. Totally. Now, as Helene continued to do more seances, she caught the attention of August Lementre. I'm mispronouncing his last name. You get the vibe. <laughs> he, was <a> prof- <laughs> he was a professor at the College of Geneva and invited her to actually hold seances at his house in March 1894. When he did this, he actually invited other academics that were also interested in spiritualism to come and hang out while they were doing these seances. Sure. It was here that uh, Helene was introduced to our friend, maybe not a friend, <laughs> our scully friend, Theodore Flournoy. I'm mispronouncing his last name. Get over it. It's fine. You can look it up. It'll be in our notes. He was a Swiss professor of psychology at the College of Geneva. Sure. And an author on spiritualism and parapsychology. Again, another one of those science and spiritualism type minds. Mm-hmm. Flournoy was taken by uh, Helene and expressed to her that he wanted to invite her to be a part of an in-depth case study on her abilities and past lives. So she accepted, and for years they worked together. As a psychologist, Flournoy believed that mediumship would better help explain psychology and the human personality. So his approach was a scientific approach mm-hmm. through the realm of mediumship, which is kind of cool. He was a contemporary of Freud and conducted long-term investigations and case studies into Helene's uh, abilities, which he published under the title from India to the planet Mars. Hmm. That is actually one of the direct resources of this episode. I'll put it in the show notes. You can find it online. Um, But that was published after he did the actual, like, investigations. So during the investigations, upon entering a trance, uh, Helene's guide of sorts, our friend Leopold, or whoever he turned into, uh, would explain Helen's... Helen's would explain Helene's acts to Flournoy and talk to the investigator pretty independently of Helene. Um, And so she would often awaken from these deep trances and have no idea what just happened. Throughout the study, Flournoy attributed Helene's supposed past life trance experiences to cryptomnesia, cryptomnesia. It's basically a type of subconscious plagiarism and memory bias. Flournoy later suggested that Smith should be diagnosed with multiple personality disorder and that such mediumship or mediumistic trances and false memories were the result of a subconscious mind, not spirits. Mm. So I'm going to be talking about a little bit of his evaluation as things are happening. Mm -hmm. And then talk about what was actually published, Mm -hmm. and we'll get into that even further. It was Flournoy who proposed the pseudonym Helene Smith and actually changed her name for her for the rest of her life. Um, She kept this name going. Mm -hmm. And uh, he used the pseudonym after his young daughter, who Mm -hmm. had the same name. And um, when Catherine... Helene Smith, uh, when she met the child, the medium really loved her name and was like, I like that name. Can I use it? I'm going to use it. And then it was her name. So basically like stage name is 
Helene Smith. Um, Helene's vast uh, array of narratives uh, were termed by Flournoy as, quote, subliminal romances, Mm -hmm. which he used to basically explain uh, anything from trances involving past lives to spirit painting and glossolalia, which I'll explain in a sec. All right. So cryptamnesia aside, Helene's past lives were staggeringly pretty, pretty wild. Uh, He classified these lives into three cycles. First, he had the Hindu cycle. Mm -hmm. Then he had the royal cycle Mm -hmm. for Marie Antoinette. And then there was the Martian cycle, which hold the phone on that one for a second, too. Um, As her trances progressed, she named Flournoy as actually the reincarnation of her Hindu husband. And together, they recreated scenes from their life, Uh, which I'm like, he must have been like really just going along for the ride on this one. Uh, In these scenes, Smith supposedly spoke Sanskrit and wrote in rudimentary Arabic script. Uh Um, And these were often described as fragmented compared to some of the other writings that were found later. Um, But at the same time, her ability to describe romantic scenes and landscapes was absolutely astounding. And it kind of blew the minds of everybody that saw it happen. But then things got weirder and more bizarre. (laughs) Okay. So in 1894, on November 25th, Uh she had her first vision of the planet Mars, in which she described the environment and inhabitants of Mars and spoke their language. Sure. She would describe her, quote, flight into space, arriving at a landscape of disembodied, long-dead inhabitants Carriages gliding by with no horses or wheels, but emitting sparks of houses with fountains on the roof and men and women dressed almost similarly. Sure. I just love the description of long dead inhabitants, disembodied. I mean, I love a good disembodied anything. Right? Disembodied human or alien remains. Just a great word, too. Disembodied. Disembodied. That's a really good word. Disembodied. I have a feeling that's a black metal band. Disembodied. Um, it should be. If it's not, that's just sure rude and a missed opportunity, and we're going to make one. I feel like I need to look that up now. I feel like I've heard of that before. Do you want so me to look it up? Is. I can look it up. Hold on. <laughs> you want to. No, I'm curious. Um, so in her visions, Mars appeared as a world populated by humanoids of roughly Asian physiog... Is it? Is it? It totally is. It's a metalcore band. Not just oh, a metal yeah. band. I knew it. Metalcore. I don't I actually know metalcore. how that's different between metal, but it. there you go. It's a meld of hardcore music and metal music. It's called metalcore. Isn't metal like hardcore? No, there's two very different genres. We could talk about that another time. Uh, <laughs> this is like me with horror subgenres where I'm just yes. like, let me yes. tell you how alarmingly specific these things are and how they're not the same. Yes. And everyone else is like, what? <laughs> Uh-huh. Yep. Nailed it. Um, anywho, Mars appeared as a world populated by humanoids that looked like a roughly Asian descent uh, of a type of look who used various futuristic devices like self-powered vehicles and aircraft. Sure. So like Jetson style future. Her interplanetary psychic visions are really similar, actually. Uh to contactee accounts from the 1950s and 1960s. Fun fact. I love that fun fact. So some other fun facts. Uh, Some of the features of Mars included dog-like creatures Uh with heads that looked like cabbages 
that not only fetched objects for their masters, but also took dictation. Hmm. Hey, Kim. Yeah. What if Tilly and Spooky had cabbage hair and took dictation from us? Uh, <laughs> then things would be right freaky then. One can dream. One can dream. Um, so, you know, the Martian cycle eventually gave way to a related Roman that occurred in a place called Ultramars, which was potentially part of the planet, just another side of it. Sure. Ultramartians allegedly looked more like trolls than human beings. Okay. Love that detail. Wonder if they had bridges. Um, they had a language that was a little bit different from that of the OG Martians, if you will. Sure. And employed an ideographic rather than phonetic script. Uh-huh. On February 2nd, 1896, Helene actually started speaking Martian. And mm-hmm. on November 2nd, a spirit named Ezenale, 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 choose your own adventure, translated Martian into French. Mm. When Flournoy asked for the translation, because, of course, this guy's going to be like, I'm sorry, what can you <laughs> translate? Um, and the attendees of the seance recorded the translation in French. Okay. Ezenale was allegedly a reincarnation of Alexis Mirbel, who was the deceased son of one of the sitters in Smith's circle mm-hmm. and the primary interpreter of all of the Martian language that was spoken. Okay. Now, this language would come to Helene in a variety of hallucinations, both auditory, visual, through, you know, showing her how to write the alien symbols. Mm -hmm. And this is all wild. This Mm -hmm. is like nuts. A lot of people questioned Helene, rightfully, right? And the legitimacy of this Martian language. Sure. Um, Speaking of which, I'm going to put a pause here because I want to show you what this language looked like. Okay. And I'm going to share my screen. Okay. All right, so this is what the Martian language looked like in letters that she wrote and alien symbols. And uh, I'll post a picture of this on our Instagram for this topic so y'all can see it too. You can also just look it up. It's Google. Google's fun. It's your Google friend. is fun. Um, my favorite are the drawings of <laughs> the aliens and their outfits and um, the cabbage-headed dogs. Totally. With weird-looking nipples. Um, looks like something one of my students would draw. <laughs> right? I just love the head of the alien. Like, it's, everything else is so, like, 3D looking, and then the head's just, like, stick figure Mwah. status. <laughs> um, and then this is a depiction of the Hindu realm that she saw, and it's just really detailed, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to show you some of the pictures. Here's more of the language. And some additional drawings that uh, she did through different seances. They're pretty detailed. Um, and I'll, I'll show you these, these next, next ones are paintings that she did later in life that we'll talk about. So nonetheless... Helene seemed sane. She seemed like a well-adjusted and genuine individual. So it was kind of weird to question what she was doing because she didn't seem like a crazy person. She Mm -hmm. didn't seem like someone who was like off her rocker in any way. And the transformation of her personality during the seances was absolutely mind-blowing for the people who saw it. 
As bizarre as her trance tongues were, they truly did sound like a language, which was even weirder. What's extra interesting is that Smith didn't seek out the psychologists and linguists. They found her. She didn't come to Flournoy with a problem to be solved. He found her and wanted to study her. So she had no issues with any of the things that were happening. Sure. Somebody sought her out Mm -hmm. and was intrigued and curious and then was like, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So by comparing the Martian texts with the French translations, Flournoy himself quickly discovered that the Martian was actually French in structure. Hmm. Only the words were new and seemingly incomprehensible. Enter Mm -hmm. Scully. (laughs) Welcome. Martian had all the characteristics of a language, right? Mm -hmm. It it actually, over the course of seven years of seances, it remained pretty consistent, Mm -hmm. structurally stable. It was, it didn't change at all, which made it even more interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, But while its structural characteristics closely followed the French language, the Mm -hmm. vocabulary was still unknown Mm -hmm. um, to the people that were hearing it. So although Flournoy disagreed with Helene about the meaning and the source of her otherworldly tongues, he never tried to change her mind. So I respect him for that. Um, He never tried to tell her what she was experiencing was wrong or that she was wrong. He just believed what he believed. Sure. Yeah. Um, He also didn't try to fix it. He didn't try to provide like a therapeutic correction. He just wanted to understand her behaviors in a broader psychological and historical light, Mm -hmm. which I actually respect and think that's kind of cool. Because I feel like someone in that position could be a total asshole and be like, no, (laughs) just no, this is nuts. Just no. Um, But he actually just observed, really, Mm -hmm. and evaluated. And her Martian language has actually been studied for a really long time as a form of hereditary tendency to glossolalia. So I said I was going to come back to that. Glossolalia is actually a term for speaking in tongues. Mm -hmm. And it's a term used by Paul in 1 Corinthians to name speech that is spiritually inspired but unrecognizable as human language. So while Helene's native uh, language was French. Mm-hmm. She was actually very well versed in Hungarian, hmm. Spanish, Italian. <laughs> Has some German in there, even though she hated studying it. She did. Um, and she had a rudimentary knowledge of Latin, English, and Greek. This is also a little counterintuitive to the other information I found about her studying in school earlier. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how accurate this is. I'll just say that. Um, Her Martian language, while looking really bizarre, as you saw in those pictures, that does not look like regular alphabet letters, um, was dissected by Flournoy and a Swiss linguist named Ferdinand de Saussure. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Um, And they both agreed that it was derived from French. So basically her... Martian was like a French code with a symbol relating to a French letter with similar grammatical rules. Mm -hmm. Um, It just was skewed. And after the French roots were discovered, she then created a second, more complex Martian language, which uh, was dubbed Ultra Martian Cycle. Ultra Martian. uh, I'm like, can we get more creative, please? Uh. Um, (laughs) By Flournoy. 
And um, apparently it was from a planet further away than Mars. I know there was like ultra Mars earlier, but like this is from a different planet, allegedly. Enter the Society for Psychical Research. Ah, yes. I'm a member. You are. Yeah. Uh, Their uh, PSI encyclopedia actually says, quote, the ultra Martian language was more complex. Ultra Martian inhabitants were more grotesque than those of Mars, which Hmm. Flournoy interpreted as an unconscious response on the part of Helene to his skepticism toward her naive descriptions of the beauty of life on Mars, end quote. In his book, uh, Flournoy attributes Smith's past lives and supernatural narratives to being, quote, products of subliminal imagination, their content based on her previous memories and experiences incubated and creatively combined in the subliminal regions of her mind. Hmm. So Smith's lives were very real and legitimate to her. Um, Sure, of course. But it essentially, allegedly, Hmm. was her own mind's creation. Mm Mm-hmm. So fast forward, after the study is done, late 1899, the book From India to Planet Mars is published. Uh It documents the Martian language and writing includes hand-drawn illustrations and scenes that I just showed you. um, And you can find on our Instagram when we post it. And mysterious vignettes of life on another planet. Hmm. Uh, It also includes 40 short texts in Martian with translations in French Uh and English. And this book truly highlighted Helene. It brought her some significant fame. And it actually is still in print now, over 100 years later. Really? That's kind of cool. Yeah. I found it. I I read it. I used it as a resource. That's right. Yeah. Um, And what's interesting is in it, unfortunately, Florinai manages to completely alienate, pun pun intended, uh, Smith, Mm -hmm. arguing that her trans personalities and tongues are the product of... Uh, subconscious minds, mm-hmm. uh, fantasies, and represented a variety of regressive behaviors, mm-hmm. which we kind of talked about already. Sure, yeah. So he describes her as follows, quote, Helene Smith, to be a beautiful woman about 30 years of age, tall, vigorous, of a fresh, healthy complexion, with hair and eyes almost black, of an open and intelligent countenance, which at once invoked sympathy. She evinced nothing of the emaciated or tragic aspect which one habitually ascribes to the sibyls of tradition, but wore an air of health, of physical and mental vigor, very pleasant to behold, and which, by the way, is not often encountered in those who are very good mediums, (laughs) who possess a triple mediumship, visual, auditive, and typological, end quote. I love how he's like... She's real pretty. Most mediums are really ugly, but she's nice. But she, she's all right. I like her. I, she's easy on my eyes. I'll watch her. <laughs> I'll keep Maybe her. that's why he came after her. I don't know. Hey. Men. Anyway, so he comes to the conclusion that she really possesses a faculty of telekinesis, goes down a rabbit hole of that, and then, you know, ends up saying that he exercises great skill and ingenuity in the effort to trace very wonderful and astonishing manifestations with which he has to deal to natural sources. So literally just goes back and says this came from her brain, AKA debunked. (laughs) So naturally guess who's pissed. (laughs) Your mom. 
Helene Smith is not a happy camper. <laughs> what? I bet your mom wasn't happy either. I mean, my mom wouldn't read this. It's fine. That's true. She also wouldn't be happy if she did. That's uh, also so true. you're not wrong. Um, but Helene Smith was really pissed because she like let this guy in on all her seances, let him study her, and then he comes out and says all this shit in a book, but didn't tell her beforehand. Yeah, like, it's kind of shady. I mean, like, the fact that he didn't tell her beforehand, that was like, oh, yay, nice, that he's trying to be respectful. But, like, did he think she wasn't going to read it? Like, come on. So that's kind of a dick move. But I guess, you know, when you let someone in on your seance to write about it, you don't have control about the narrative. I mean, that can be said about a lot of things. True, right? Uh So anyway, she's pissed. And from this point on, she refuses to let him into any of her seances. Rightfully. Fair. And then she ends up taking 50% of the profits made from the book. She pretty much told him that without her, he wouldn't have a book. Sure. So give me half of the profits. And he does. He gave it to her. Uh, Okay. So, hell yeah. Um, This is a quote. Professor Flournoy's heroine, although she is a high-minded, honorable woman, regarded by all her neighbors and friends as wholly incapable of conscious fraud, has been subjected to the closest surveillance on the part of a number of eminent physicians and scientists of Geneva for more than five years past, while Mrs. Piper, the famous Boston medium, has been subjected to even closer scrutiny by the Society for Psychical Research for the past 15 years, end quote. That's from Flournoy. Okay. So... He's admitting that he's doing this to her, too, which is even worse. So not, you know, not everyone is a fan of his analysis. One reviewer actually stated, quote, it is very unlikely that science will ever discover the nature of these mysterious phenomena or the laws which govern them, end quote. In an article he wrote in response to his critics a year after the book was published, Flournoy stated, quote, they believe that those who are not satisfied with the evidence, 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 already offered will not be convinced by any amount of further testimony that their skepticism is invincible, end quote. Mm. So basically, I'm never going to make you happy, so get over it. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) So while Helene stated that the study caused her, like, significant embarrassment and had really lasting negative effects to her, she still, you know, continued to be a medium in her life. um, And told alien tales for a while. She even apparently uh, had some extraterrestrial romances in Uranus (laughs) (laughs) and the moon. So many jokes I could make there. I don't even know (laughs) where to start. At the butt of the joke, maybe? Oh, man. I... Yeah, nope. That's there's mm, 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 nope. Too nah, no overload. 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 Too many. Overload. Too many. Not enough. By 1901, she Catherine Elise Muller had basically fully become Helene Smith. And while she uh, disagreed with Flournoy's book. It absolutely was a thorn in her side, but it also was kind of a double-edged sword. She recognized its value as a representation of all of her accomplishments because it did list all of her accomplishments. Sure, yeah. But it also kind of gave her a bad rap at the same time. Sure, yeah. Um, And, you know, she used the name, the term Helene Smith, until she died. And she's still Hmm. known by that name because, you know, I mean, don't they say all publicity is good publicity? So... To a degree. To, to a degree. So as as her career progressed, she left her alien narratives somewhat behind, 
Um, she actually started painting and uh, was really into Christian visions. So she painted a bunch of like Virgin Marys and Christ, which I showed you a picture of earlier. So she especially got really into those Christian vision paintings uh, mm-hmm. after her mom died. And while, you know, it provided a therapeutic effort to process her loss, I get it. You know, yeah. you've got to do what you got to do to deal with it. But I totally. love that she had a creative outlet. Mm-hmm. And over time, she gave fewer seances, continued her religious devotion. And uh, she actually eventually had financial support from an American sponsor so that she could continue to pursue her spiritual Mm. and religious painting um, and actually became pretty well known in the surrealist movement. Um, Shortly after her death in 1929, a large retrospective of her work was actually exhibited at the Geneva Art Museum where her strange art was celebrated by art lovers and spiritualists alike, which is kind of cool. And despite, you know, her estrangement from Flournoy, again, she used her pseudonym until she died. Um, But before and after her death, there were a lot of people who had a lot to say about what was happening. And um, people continued to study the case for years. And, you know, the case that Flournoy did was uh, a way to look into it even further. Mm -hmm. There's a whole section that I found actually when I was doing research. It was one of those moments where I was like, do I use this? It's cool. But (laughs) it literally dissects the entire Martian language and tells you the like roots of words in French. So like if you are curious about that translation from the Martian to French, there is a realm and world out there for you to explore. Google is your friend, as we said earlier. So feel free to look that up. I'm just not going to include it here because this is already a long episode. So, you know, let's talk about a few of the other commentaries. So psychologists Leonard Zusny and Warren H. Jones have written, quote, Flournoy was able to show her Martian language was an artful fabrication. Although it sounded decidedly foreign, frequency analysis of the words and letters and examination of the syntax convinced Flournoy that the language had all the basic structural characteristics of French, Helene Smith's native tongue. In a subsequent investigation, Flournoy reported that the source of a short phrase that she had written in Arabic during her Indian cycle probably came from having seen an identical phrase inscribed in a book owned by a Genevan physician. She had retained a visual image of the script and in due time copied it from memory in an uncertain hand. Because we talked about all the alien translations, but we didn't talk about any of the Hindu stuff. Sure. So then there's Victor Henry. He was a professor at the Sorbonne and tried to explain uh, the word formation on the basis of various languages and evaluated French, German, English, but also looked into Hungarian and even Sanskrit for her Martian language, and he published a book on it in 1901. Hmm. His study was severely criticized by a guy named Ferdinand de Saussure. He was a founder of modern linguists and living in Geneva, who um, he had attended some of the seances that, Helene actually did, and he was just, like, pissed about it and was like, no, this shit's legit. Um, He himself thought that the Martian words were a complete arbitrary transformation of French words and didn't involve any other language. 
And what's interesting is that when all this happened, when the 1901 book was published, Flournoy was still around. And so he actually read it and accepted the breakthrough and actually used Henry's observations to confirm his own suspicion that the subpersonality responsible for Smith's trans languages was actually a regressed version of her own personality when she was 10 or 12 years old, <laughs> which was technically a period of time where she was uh, allegedly exposed to some spoken Hungarian and Latin and Greek, which, I mean, that makes sense if she was learning languages at school, right? Sure, yeah. Wildly, there is a subset of 250 Martian words that have been analyzed. Hmm. Some believe there's no need for the language, uh, as such as Hungarian or even Sanskrit. Depends on who you talk to, right? Um, and then there's also the evaluation of Kraepelin's dream language. Have you heard of that? It's ringing a bell, but I can't recall why. That's okay. So it basically is a language that can be created when you're in a dreamlike state mm-hmm. um, that doesn't really have uh, an actual language base. So mm. it basically this gives a comparison to maybe she was dreaming. Mm. when she was speaking these languages um, because they can also happen similarly to the trance or hypnotic state because there are alternative states of consciousness. Mm. So that was another theory. Um, Most of them were called imaginary languages. They didn't have any actual translation. And if she wanted to translate her own, her prerogative. So in 1932, literally like 30 years uh, later, Walter Diona published parts of Helene Smith's diary. I think that's rude. Um, But that's just me. She died like three years prior. And then three years later after her death, you're going to publish her diary? Yeah, that's what she cares at that point, though. That's true. She can't really say much unless you do a seance and bring her back. And then she'll tell you all about it. And then she'll give her feelings on the subject. Yep. Uh, Apparently, she constantly feared that she would be killed. It was a fear that started somewhere between the ages of 5 to 10. This is the exact time that her sister, Marie, died um, when Mm. she was 7. So uh, one of the seances that she did, she invoked uh, St. Catherine, Mm -hmm. which also Catherine was her original name. So Mm -hmm. that's something to, you know, note. Apparently, uh, St. Catherine protects against sudden death. And that might have helped Smith process her own fear of death and master that, but mm-hmm. subliminally will come out through, you know, a visit, a visitation. Um, later, she apparently allegedly fully forgot about Marie and her existence. And two years before her death in 1927, she had a vision of the Virgin Mary um, mm. that reminded her about her sister. Um, oh, and so part of some people think that, you know, Marie's death might be the trauma that's the like root and the basis of her visions and language production, mm-hmm. which trauma response is real. That's a thing that everyone deals with in their own way. And that would make a lot of sense here, too. So, um, you know, everybody has an opinion. There was a psychologist, Donovan Rawcliffe in 1952, who noted that she had suffered from a fantasy prone personality and hysterical hallucinations, you know, regardless of what people thought, it's a fascinating story Mm -hmm. and it's bizarre and weird. And like, I had no idea until I like dug deep into this, which you could go deep, real deep into this. I did. Y'all, I had, like, almost 30 pages of notes and had to consolidate it down to 10. Like, there is a lot 
out there. So if this is only 10 pages and this is this long, imagine how much more you could find if you decide to go looking mm. for more. Mm. So this leads us to the ultimate question. Were there really aliens? Was she almost abducted slash abducted as a teenager? Who's this like dude in the brown cloak? Is it Leopold? Was she really Marie Antoinette? Was she just an empathetic, sensitive individual with unknown trauma that affected her engagement in spiritualism? Questions. Questions. Kim, Gabby has you, questions. What do you think, Kim? Where, where do you stand with all this? I mean, uh, again, um, I'm, I'm never opposed to thinking that somebody could be experiencing these things genuinely. I think to an individual, it is very real. Um, I just rarely see honest, compelling evidence. 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 Um, that if, if, if we're looking at things scientifically, none of this to me is, is evidence. None of this is fact. This is, this is, um, Accounts. It's interesting. Again, I, I believe it was maybe very real for her, but um, I, I find stories like this very interesting. But dot dot dot. <laughs> you know I mean, what I mean, it's truly one of those that we could talk about forever. Sure, like we yeah. could go on and yeah. on and on and evaluate. Um, is there one? part of the story or anything in particular that was brought up that you find is like the weirdest or more most fascinating of Helen <sighs> Smith. I mean, I guess it's hard cuz like doing this especially, you know, we come across some weird shit, man. We do. Uh, I love finding it. I mean, the alien connection is is probably for me the most unique about all of this. Like I'm used to people Talk. I, I read lots of accounts of past lives. I read lots of accounts of of um, you know ghosts and connections to whatever. But the the alien connection is kind of new. So I guess that that to me would be sort of the most unique or or odd part about all of this. Oh yeah, my favorite part's the cabbage dog. The cabbage dog. The cabbage dog. But again, <laughs> given what was going on, is a cabbage dog and calling cabbage dog an alien is that much different from people? Who you know see Bigfoot, the Jersey Devil, or uh, 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 the Beast of Javardin, and it's like, oh no, it's a giant wolf. Like, um, it, it's it's sort of a, a variation on a theme in terms of uh, weird weird things and and the origin of a weird thing. Like, I do, do you know what I'm trying to yeah. say? Like, no, for sure. And I think you have to have like a mind that's primed for it in order to make that be a thing. Right. Yeah. And that's why I think this was so poignant during this time was because it was during like the peak of spiritualism. Mm -hmm. And it was during the time where people truly believed in all the seance things that were happening. And it took people like Flournoy to get involved and say, you know, I'm going to study this mm -hmm. scientifically. I'm going to study it, not for the sake of trying to disprove necessarily, but sure. out of curiosity. Sure. And whatever comes of it, comes of it. Unfortunately, it made Helene look pretty bad and sucks for her, but also publicity. And, you know, she lived a long life and she 
had some wild experiences and we're talking about her still. And I think one of the wild things too, though, is that with all of this hypothesis of aliens over a hundred years ago, this Mm -hmm. is like 130 years at this point ish, Mm -hmm. right? All of the evidence that shows that there actually is alien life out there that's coming out these days is wild. No, it's true. It's true. It's still relevant today, which is which is nuts. I mean, I might not say, hey, uh, that person told me they're Marie Antoinette and Marie Antoinette's in that UFO floating above me. I might question that a little bit. Right. Sure, um, sure. If someone tells me they saw a cabbage dog, I'd be like, is it just, you know, a, a mix? <laughs> like, right. Right. What is it? Um, but there are some realms that do have crossover. And I think that's what makes it so intriguing, too. But anyway, that's the story of uh, our friend, Helene Smith. Good old Helene. Catherine Elise Muller, whoever <laughs> you would like to refer to her as, and uh, the OG Mulder, if you will. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, there, there's some very, uh, <laughs> very strange things there. <laughs> It's a fun time. It's a fun time. Have fun. Yeah. And this brings us to Creepy Critics Corner. Creepy Critics Corner. Kim, what you watching? Uh, I got a movie and a TV show. Nice. Yeah. So I went and saw Megan. Oh, how was it? Oh, it was it was it was fun. It was it was a good time. Um, it's it's to me such a great example of of like it knows exactly what it is. It's not trying to be highbrow horror. It's just a really, really good time. Um, the the script is fun. It's very self-aware. Nice. Um, the acting is great. Uh, it, it definitely, you know, this is why you don't let electronics raise your children because this is what happens. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's no, it, it's really fun. And again, I'd say it's really fun. And if you have the chance, it's worth seeing in theaters. Okay. Um, I, I I feel this way increasingly more and more. Just um, seeing certain movies in theaters really does change the experience of it. So um, yeah, yeah. If you want just kind of a fun, silly horror film, uh, go and see Megan. Uh, I started watching The Resort on Peacock. Oh, and now this one was really interesting because the the whole premise of it is. Um, this couple who uh, go um, to to Mexico for their anniversary, and you know, it seems like their marriage is kind of something strange. There's there's things going on, but um, she ends up finding a cell phone that's connected to a missing person's case from 15 years prior. Ooh, and initially when I first started watching it, like it, it, it's actually like, it's kind of a, it's a mystery. It's a drama. It's kind of a dark comedy. When I first started watching it, I thought it was going to be a very straightforward sort of true crime thing where you're flashing back and forth to, to contemporary and then to, to 15 years ago and trying to piece together this mystery. I'm up to episode, uh, 
I'm on episode five or six right now, and I think it's uh, I think there's probably uh, eight episodes total. Um, it's uh, I think I'm on six. Yeah, I'm on on episode six. It's got a whole like vaguely supernatural element to it that started to unfold where there, I don't it, I don't really want to say a whole lot because the surprise of it's really cool. And I'm still like, I still have a few episodes left, but it's been, it's been really fun to watch. And nice. it's one that kind of, I remember when it came out over the summer and I had clocked it as, oh, this is a show I think I'd like, but it came out right around the time I was starting Hundred Days of Horror. Oh, forget it. Uh, yeah. So anything coming out television wise around then, I'm like, oh, that's I'm not going to get to that for a long time. So um, I started watching it the other day because the episodes are like between thirty to forty minutes long. So I was like, okay, I've got you know I've got thirty minutes to kill. I can I can sit yeah. down and watch this while I eat dinner or whatever. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm hooked. So, nice. but it, it's kind of gone under the radar. I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, great cast. There's lots of, oh, it's that guy in it. Uh, you got Nick Offerman as, as, I as, love Nick Offerman. He's, he's, he's in there as, as the dad of, of one of the people who goes missing. Um, and, uh, uh. From the the good place, um, William Jackson Harper from the good place, uh, and uh, the the oh I I, I knew her because she was uh, on Broadway, but I I believe um, she was like the mom in How You Met Your Mother. She was the mother. Am I right there? I might be wrong. Uh, I'm not sure. I I didn't watch How I Met Your Mother. I just remember. A whole thing, and I was pr- anyway. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's airing on Peacock. It's worth a watch. It's it's really fun, and and the mystery is legit. And again, if it, it kind of checks all the boxes because you've got the true crime, you've got the like people investigating and trying to figure out what's going on, and then you've got something extra and weird happening underneath it all. Nice. Yeah, that actually sounds really similar to something I watched. Oh, do tell. Um, I watched. Okay, first of all. I will tell you, it's been a minute since we recorded, right? Because oh, yeah, we pre-recorded the last one earlier that's and then right. took a little break because of the holidays. Mm-hmm. So I had a really long break from work and I was able to like just turn my brain off and binge a bunch of stuff. Nice. So I watched season one and all of season two of The White Lotus. Oh, I've been, that's been on my list, but I haven't gotten there yet. Are you familiar with what it's about? Yeah. 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 And Jennifer Coolidge. Okay. Yes. I freaking love, I love Jennifer her. Coolidge. I love her. Um, she's just so fun to watch. And like season one and season two are, are very, they're different. Um, but basically the premise is it's about, you know, a bunch of random people that are pretty privileged staying at a resort in a vacation location, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and a bunch of weird stuff happens and crimey things happen and just weird 
bizarre things. Um, and then weird relationships between the people that end up bumping into each other. And you see these relationships start to build. And it's very well written. Um, yeah. And one of the things that it it leads with in the very first episode of season one, you see just a body bag. <laughs> like mm. This guy by himself. And this couple's like, oh, you were here on your honeymoon? Where's your wife? And then he just looks out at a body bag. And you're like, <laughs> oh, Aww. shit. Um, but it's it's a little bit misleading. So it's just kind of like it plants, like this is going to be dark. Mm-hmm. Like you know this is going to be dark. But then there's also some like, pretty significant comedy throughout it, but also it's really fucked up in many ways. Um, So for me, it checks all the boxes. Sure. (laughs) Um, I think for you, it would as well. And um, season one is in, it takes place in Hawaii. Season Mm -hmm. two takes place in Italy. And season two has our friend Aubrey Plaza. And, that's um, that's right. Yes, because I've been seeing we, her on the the trailers. Yeah, yeah, and she is great. And I I know you talked about Emily the criminal. Yeah, uh, on our last episode, mm-hmm. I haven't seen it yet. That's still on my to do list. Um, but it's uh, this was my first time seeing her in a role that's less comedic than I'm used to her playing, mm. and she did a really phenomenal job. Um, And uh, anyway, I really liked both seasons. I Mm -hmm. thought they were engaging. It it really kept you on the seat of your, or the edge of your seat, almost Mm -hmm. on the seat of your pants, the edge of the seat of your pants. Um, And uh, I love that there's like this one scene in season two where this family goes and visits like a location where the Godfather was filmed and like there's really tacky like Godfather merch all around. Nice. I just thought that was funny. Nice. Um, But yeah, highly recommend. It's very good, but... Dark, dark humor. Mm-hmm. Very dark. Um, and if you like Jennifer Coolidge, just watch it because it's I do great. enjoy Jennifer um, Coolidge. You, Kim, you would love this show. I'm just no, going to say that right now. It's been, on, it's been on my list. It's just not quite as high up my list as... Uh, other things. Other things, yeah. Um, sadly, sadly, between television and movies, my list is... Perpetually, very, 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 <laughs> very what? Very what? long. It's very, very long. Um, okay. Yeah. So it that it's, I feel like it's one of those shows that that every time it starts to get a little higher up my list, gets bumped down by something, by something else. else. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah. No, it's it's absolutely on my list. It's just yeah. <laughs> Not yet. I get it. Um, I also watched a couple of different movies, and I don't want to put everything in this creepy critics corner because when am I going to have time to watch anything between the now and the next time that we record? Um, but I will tell you, I finally watched Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh yeah, which I had not seen yet, mm-hmm. and I'm and that I made actually my creepy critics corner when I saw it. It and did. So I'm not going to talk too much about it because you've already spoken about it, mm-hmm. and all I want to do now is get hot dog hand gloves and just <laughs> slap Terrence with them because I think it's really funny. And uh, news, I know we posted this on our Patreon and posted it on our socials as well, but we actually had a fun meeting talking about what should we do for Patreon to bring it back to life resurrected again from the dead. So um, for those of you who are patrons, thank you so much for sticking with us. For those of you that are not um let me tell you a little bit about what you can receive if you decide to help us out a little bit financially. If you would like to be a spirit, that is a $2 donation uh, per month, you would get access to seasonal bloopers, which is us screwing up and not <laughs> showing it to you on our regular episodes and can be, generally speaking, a really funny time. That's true. Um, 
for a $5 donation, you will be considered an apparition where you get access to the seasonal bloopers and access to unedited videos of episodes that actually are the visual medium that are (laughs) unedited with the bloopers um, on the same day that the episode releases. So a little bit more content to peruse. If you would like to watch it raw with a video, you are <laughs> including free sometimes to do when so. we take bathroom breaks or kick pets out of the room. Yes, that also is included for free. Um, <laughs> and then if you would like to be a ghoul, that is a $10 donation per month. You get the above two things. And you get access to ghoul side chats. Ooh. Kim, what are ghoul side chats? Uh, ghoul side chats are a little bit of us chatting about current events in the true crime, paranormal, cryptid, and weird world. And uh, they will be coming out on the off weeks. So the weeks that we don't have a new episode and you're feeling like, I need a little Gabby Kim fix, you can head over to Patreon and listen to us uh chatting about whatever's going on. In fact, we're going to be recording our first one right after we finish this episode. Woohoo! There's been a lot of things happening in, in the true crime world. I was I was looking at stuff and I was like, I don't even know how to just pick a few of them because there's so many things happening right now. Uh, yeah, so it should be a good time. And that's for a ghoul. So you, for a ghoul, you get the ghoul side chats plus those unedited videos plus the bloopers. And if you would like to be a cryptid, choose your own. Uh, that is a $20 donation per month. That includes all of the above. You get the ghoul side chats, the unedited videos. You also get the bloopers. And you can suggest an episode topic to us mm. to be able to cover in the future and get some live shout outs. So this is a perfect opportunity for us to shout out Jeffrey, who is such a wonderful human, who has been such a wonderful supporter to us um, for a really long time now, and uh, definitely is a really just genuinely wonderful human. And we really appreciate you, Jeffrey. And we really do. Thank you. And thank you to all of our other um patrons too so if you'd like to see what we got up our sleeves check out our patreon we also have something else besides patreon what else do we have uh well we've recently started putting our episodes up on youtube as well so if you're someone who likes to listen to things via youtube we have our most recent two episodes so the two-parter on the hammersmith murders and if enough people are engaging there i'll start putting up the back catalog we'll be putting all current episodes up on there And if I get time, I might even add some pictures. But right now, it's just the audio, our logo, and the episode logo. More content for you. More content for you. And if you would like to find us on socials, just look us up. We're everywhere that would be uh, the Ghoulish Tendency Podcast. So uh, that would be on Instagram, Facebook, where have you. Um, But thank you so much for listening. If you like what we do, head on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us a rating or review. If you really love us, head over to Patreon and choose which level you would like access to for our goodies. Um, and having said that, thank you so much for listening and stay.